says, uh, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or what is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will ask you ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from, or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of your word, Lord. I thank you uh, for the power that it changes lives. And so as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, I pray, open our ears, Lord. Give us hearts to understand, Lord, that we would leave here changed, Lord. I pray that you would anoint Jackie this morning that he would speak the words that you would have him speak. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember last week, we, uh, we talked about the idea of authority. What is our final authority? And the concept that the, the world ultimately is asking the same questions that the Pharisees asked, right? The, the idea of, uh, well, who says... What you say is true. How do I know? How, how can I know that, that what you're doing is right? It's the same thing they asked Jesus, right? How do we know? But here's what I want you to understand and what we tried to talk about last week. Whenever Jesus spoke, what he said, it accomplished what he intended for it to accomplish. In other words, when people heard him talk, you know what they said? Wow, this guy speaks with authority. Uh... We read several scriptures where it talked about Jesus healing, where it talked about Jesus casting out the demons, and it said that he spoke to them as one having authority. We see Jesus standing before the storm with his disciples, and his disciples freaking out, remember? And Jesus did what? Peace be still. And the storm stopped. The Bible tells us that those are all acts of God, of Yahweh. They say that only God can calm the chaos. And I don't know about you, but I know that it was only God who's been able to calm the chaos in my own life. 
to speak to the own, my own storms inside of me and say, peace be still. So when we come, the, what we want to understand is when someone asks for authority, by, by what authority? What they're doing is rejecting who God is. We reject God when we ask Him, prove yourself to me, because Romans chapter 1, when we looked at Romans chapter 1, everybody remember? Romans chapter 1 says that mankind is without excuse because all of mankind knows God, because God has shown Himself to them. We see the fingerprints of God all around us. We, we, we remember we talked about this last week, and I don't want to spend a lot of time hashing on it, but when we look back, we, we talked about the idea that that we can count, but without God we can't account for counting. That we can think logically, but without God we can't account for logic. That we have a moral code within us, but without God we can't account for the moral code. All of these things that we have, that we see around us, are evidences that God says that we see of Him in the things that are made, so that we are without excuse. So when we hear the Word of God make a a truth claim, and we say, well, by what authority? What we're really saying is we reject your authority. We're not asking for evidence. We're grasping for a reason, something we can hold on to to say, I want a reason why I can reject you. And we talked about this. It all comes back to the idea of ultimate authorities. You guys remember what we talked about, ultimate authorities? How do we know where our ultimate authority is? Our ultimate authority is always in the place where our argument becomes circular. The easiest way to understand that is between parents and children, right? When we say, what? I said no because I told you so. What was my ultimate authority? Me, right? This is what I'm, I'm telling the child. I, I'm the ultimate authority. For everyone, every argument around the world, I don't care who you are, your ultimate authority is circular. The issue is, will your circularity be on you and your reasoning, or will your circularity be on God? Which one is more justifiable to hold to? Right? Whenever we talk about holding on to human reason as the authority in life, right? you have to explain it to me so that it's reasonable in my mind. And unless it's reasonable in my mind, I'm going to reject it. Now, if we put all our, all our hope and prayer in my reasoning, I just have one question. Have you ever been wrong? Has your reasoning ever been wrong? So why in the world would we say the ultimate authority in my life will be my reasoning? I choose to point to something higher than me. Greater than me. So I point to God as my ultimate authority, and His Word is that foundation upon which I stand. That's why my argument is circular there. Because ultimately I'm going to say, why is this wrong? Because God said so. Because God said so. The question of authority has come up before the Lord. Now Jesus is going to explain this. We, he's had this battle. You'll remember, he had this battle. The Pharisees say, well, who gave you authority to do these things? To say, to teach what you're teaching. To say what you're saying. Now who is Jesus? He's God in the flesh, right? He's God in the flesh. The Word of God made flesh. John chapter 1. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld 
within him the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. So we see the majesty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So where do you get your authority? That's what they're asking Jesus. And he says, well, let me ask you a question then. Who, who gave John the Baptist his authority? Did it come from heaven or earth? And what, what do we see from the Pharisees? What do they do? Do they care about the truth? No. It's not a question of truth, right? What's it a question of? If we say heaven, then he's going to say we should be obeying him because John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said he's the Messiah. So we can't say heaven. didn't have nothing to do with truth. And then they said, well, if we say it's of men, the people will stone us because everybody here at the temple knows he was a prophet. So what do they do? We don't know. So Jesus responds to them, and he says, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I come to speak these things. But immediately in verse 9, he looks and, he, and he's going to illustrate the truth of, of his authority in a parable. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 he starts, So he began to tell the people this parable. He wants the people to understand. He wants the people to recognize what's going on. He says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants. And he went into another country for a long while. Over and over and over again in the parables of, of Jesus, he has this kind of a parable. And the one thing I want you to, to draw your attention to before we really dive into the text is the idea that he said he lent it out to tenants and he went away for how long? A long time. He's going to leave for a long time. How long has Christ been gone? A long time. We qualify it? It's not, it's not as though it was never part of the Word. It was never part of what He taught. It was part of what He taught. He said, He let it out to tenants and He went away for a long time. He said, for the masters, the stewards of the house. Remember the parable? He said, look, I'm giving you guys all mina. Y'all got the same thing. Y'all got a mina. I'm going away for a long time. But when I come back, you'll, there'll be a reckoning. And that, that fact is still true. He went away for a long time, but there will be a reckoning. He will return. <clears throat> the angel said at the ascension of Christ, this same one which you've seen go will come again in like manner. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Scripture declares this reality. Now, as we dive into the text a little bit, he said, a man planted a vineyard. For everybody there, every single person at the temple, they know that right now he's talking about God and Israel. Now, how would they know that? Because Isaiah told them that in Isaiah chapter 5. If you have time, read Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 11. But we're just going to take a look at verse 7. In Isaiah 5, 7, it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Do we, do we have any doubts? The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are His pleasant planting. Now here's what God says about Israel. I looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The point of Isaiah chapter 5 is that God planted a vineyard. And He, he protected this vineyard. And he took care of this vineyard. But the vineyard is, is not being who she ought to be. 
She's disobedient to her maker, to her owner. I tell you, it's kind of funny. I know a lot of people, they struggle with the ideas of, of God and, and why God should have any authority over us. But let me, let me tell you this. If you had two homes and someone else was living in one of your homes, you'd have no problem understanding it. Now, that other person who's living in one of your homes, how do you want them to take care of it? We got anybody who has rentals? I'm the only one. Lord, have mercy. If one of you guys wants a house in California, I'll sell it to you now. (laughs) But one of the things I want in a renter is somebody's going to take care of my house, so I don't got to go back and fix it. So I don't got to go put it together. So so I want somebody to treat it right. No? Do we really think that's different when God created the heavens and the earth, that the whole universe is His? That even the stars proclaim His glory, the righteousness of God? All of creation has no problem with who God is and what He's about. Nobody has an issue but man. Man's living in God's house. And complaining at him. Why did you make it like this? It's mine. No? Isn't it God's house? More than that, so are you. The Bible would declare that, that He holds our very breath in His hand. That we are His creation. That in fact we have attributes within us that reflect who God is. So He says... There was a man who planted a vineyard. Belongs to him. But he leased it out to tenants. The tenants are the leaders in Israel. The ones that are standing before Jesus asking him on whose authority has he come. Look at verse 10. It says, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. So that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Right? It's his vineyard. Now how that works? That's how it works in our world, isn't it? You're farming somebody else's land. You've got a deal, don't you? There's there's either a a money amount you're paying so that you can farm a land, or you're doing some kind of deal with the harvest, but there's a deal. No? And so he sends a servant to stand for the master and to come and say, Hey, the master's asking for for his part. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Interesting behavior, No? So he sent another servant. But they they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. As you listen to the story, we should have no problem relating. If this was your place, how would you feel? Ultimately, that's what Jesus is going to ask him, isn't it? Now, how does this relate to our reality? Well, the Bible would tell us that the the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the whole universe belongs to God. In Matthew 23, just listen to the scripture. Matthew 23, 33, Jesus speaking to the leaders of Israel. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, this is Jesus speaking. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, 
Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's the first martyr and the last martyr in the Old Testament. Whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This part should sound familiar. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So we listen to the parable. It's not hard to see, is it? Who were the servants? The prophets. The people who came to the children of God weeping and and crying and begging for them to hear what God said. But the people were saying, what authority are you telling us this? In fact, one of the kings, I want to say it's Ahab. Ahab is preparing to go to battle. And another king is there next to him and says, Hey, don't you have any prophets who can tell us how the battle's going to go? So Ahab says, Yeah, I got some. So he has them come out and they all tell him, You're going to win. That's what you want to say if you're a prophet coming to the king, right? And then so this other king, he says to Ahab, He says, Don't you got any real prophets? He said, What do you mean? You don't have no prophets of Yahweh? And the king says, Yeah, but they never say nothing good. No, they just tell you the truth. We don't like the truth. We like to take the truth and, and, and make it something we can put on a shelf. Truth don't matter. What's truth? You can't even know truth. Right? That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says you can know truth. The Word of God says Jesus Christ, He's the truth. The Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ is God the Word. So if Jesus is truth, what's the word of God? Truth. We don't like what it says. You know, it's kind of archaic. It's old. You know, it's not really keeping up with the times. It's not maintaining its cultural relevance. Is truth supposed to do that? Or is truth just supposed to be true? Shall we take what is good and call it evil, and what is evil and call it good? But these are all marks of the end days, of the end times. In those days, the scripture says, men will take good and make it evil, and they'll take evil and make it good. Because what can you can't know truth. Truth is always shifting and changing. No, truth doesn't change. Truth is truth. And it should be our great desire to know it. To know truth. The only only way truth is, is wrong is if I have an interpretation of truth that's wrong. Then that's me. I'm wrong, not the truth. No. This is the great desire of mankind to know what God has said. We want to understand what scripture lays out to us. How often Jesus wanted to gather their children together, but they're not willing. Nah, we don't buy it. We don't buy it. It's rejection. 
So in verse 38 of Matthew 23, listen to what he says. This is important. See, your house is left to you, how? Desolate. The Old Testament scripture said that Messiah, one day Messiah was going to come to the temple and he was going to cleanse it. Did you know that? And then twice in Jesus' ministry, he came to the temple and what did he do? He cleansed it. He said, hey man, this stuff's all messed up. He said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. Then he said, my house shall be a house of prayer. And then he said, see, your house is left to you empty. Ichabod. Did you know that's a Hebrew word? Ichabod means the glory has departed. It's not there no more. The house is empty. Why? Because you've rejected the truth. You've rejected it. Same thing was going on in the New Testament when Stephen, remember, is brought before the leadership of the nation of Israel. Stephen, in his message that he lays out for the people in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. That means that they are actively resisting what God is calling them to. In Romans 1, it's called suppression of the truth. That you know what is true, but you're suppressing it. How do we suppress it? We hold it under the water, like a beach ball. And you can hold a beach ball under the water for a long time, but if you're doing too many other things, sooner or later, what happens to the beach ball? It pops up. The truth just keeps popping up. He says to him, you resist the Holy Spirit. You're actively holding the truth down. He says to them, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of Messiah, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. So that didn't go very well for Stephen, right? Nobody ever likes to hear the truth. They just don't. Nobody likes to hear the truth. In fact, it offends. The truth is offensive. But it doesn't stop it from being the truth. I I think it's been two years now since I went down to Arizona and I stood on the sidewalks in Scottsdale outside of a Planned Parenthood for, (coughs) I was down there for a conference for end abortion now. And uh, I went to go see what uh, what things were like on the street at the Planned Parenthood there in Scottsdale, Arizona. In the parking lot, Christians aren't allowed in the parking lot. They can only stay on the sidewalk on the outside. They know why, because Christians are there to try to stop women from aborting their babies and so they have to stand on the sidewalk now in order from the sidewalk to talk to somebody in their car in the middle of the parking lot you you either have to shout which nobody likes right or use some kind of amplification or they can't hear you so that's what people started to do they started to use amplification well the the church of satan heard about it And so they came out, the high priestess, I can't remember her name, but I did get a chance to meet her. Uh, They come out, they are, of course, welcome in the parking lot. 
So they are there when the cars park, and as soon as the cars park, they swoop in, put their arms around whatever woman is coming into Planned Parenthood, and then they turn up a radios that they have wrapped around their neck so that they can't hear the people from the sidewalk who are begging them not to do what they're about to do and trying to let them know there's other alternatives. They don't have to turn to this. And that is real life happening every day. Don't tell me they care about truth. They do not care about truth. They just care about their sin. And nobody likes it. So when we would go out to Planned Parenthood here and I'd reach out to the other churches and say, Hey, we could really use some help. You know who wanted to go? Nobody. Why? Wow, it's offensive. Isn't it offensive? In fact, if I talked to most of you guys, or a, a, a large amount of you guys, you would think, well, that's just a waste. What are you wasting your time for? Because the Word of God says that I'm supposed to be a watchman on a wall. And I'm supposed to be willing to tell someone the truth, even if they don't want to hear it, just like a prophet. And the people will hate you for it. And they'll spit in your face, and they'll throw tomatoes at you. And they'll say what a dirtbag, worthless human being you are. People will drive by and flip you off. And you can understand a little bit of what it's like to have been an Old Testament prophet. Telling the truth to people who don't want to hear it. Now we have decided as a, as a culture that it's much easier to put our head in the sand than to deal with that reality. But God says, speak the truth in love. And so, because we love, we go. We speak the truth. We do what we can. In Scottsdale, Arizona, it's the worst place I've ever been. I've never seen anything like it. Antifa is now out there. Uh, it was There were probably 200 people in the parking lot. Uh, outside the parking lot, the Christians, I don't know, maybe there's 50 of us outside um, on the sidewalks, just trying to talk to cars as they're pulling in the driveway. That's the only thing, really, that you're legally allowed to do. And uh, uh, so I try to talk to the people who are out there to stop us. They don't want to talk. Why not? Because they don't care about the truth. It was not ever about truth. I'm telling you, it is not about truth. It's about rejecting the truth. That's what our world is doing and has done. Rejected the truth. That's what they did in Old Testament days. And that's what we're still doing today. Rejecting the truth. So Jesus asked him a question. So the owner of the vineyard, he says to him, What shall I do? I know. I'll send my beloved son. They'll listen to him. Luke 3.22 tells us that at the baptism of Christ, what happened? The, the dove descended, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on him, and the heavens opened up, and the Father said, This is my what? Beloved son, in whom I am? Well, please. So who do you think the beloved son is in the story? 
It's not that complicated. So the owner of the vineyard is going to send his son. Matthew 17.5, at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus' glory was revealed to his disciples, again the heavens opened and the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Second Peter. Peter, writing about these events, in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, That's called the eyewitness account. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's not about truth. It's about, I need a reason to reject it. I want to be able to reject it. So what's the plot of the vine dressers in verse 14? But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That's exactly what's going to happen in a few days. They're going to take him outside of the vineyard, out of Jerusalem, And they're going to kill him. What are they sitting around talking about right now? Killing him. And here he is telling them a parable about what they're doing. They're thinking about killing me. Fact. This is why I've come. This is the purpose for which I come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, listen to this. This is kind of the idea, theologically, what we call judicial hardening. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8, it says, But we impart a secret, a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, that none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Judicial hardening means God blinded their eyes, so that they would not see. This is what it means when I say that Jesus came not to, to establish the church. He didn't come in in essence, in his ministry to save anybody. He came to die. They were always going to crucify him. God decided that before the foundation of the world. This was what he was coming to do. And that veil's not lifted until the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and the message goes forth. And now man has opportunity to receive. Man has opportunity to respond to the message of God. So Jesus asked the question, it says in 15, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What do you think he would do? What would you do? It's your vineyard. You lease it out. They won't give you what's due. You finally send your son because you think, Well, they're just not listening to these guys because they're my servants. I'll send my son. And they kill him. What are you going to do? That's the question that Jesus puts before the leaders. And he gives them the answer. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants. And he will give the vineyard to others. And the people that are listening, they all say, surely not. Because they understand. What's he talking about? Jerusalem's going to pass. Jerusalem's going to be taken out of Jewish hands and put into another. Did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. All the way to like 1948, yeah? 
It ceased to be a nation. It was taken from the hands of the Jews and placed into the hands of the Gentiles. 70 AD, destroyed, temple brought down, their house, their house. God's not in it, their house. It's left desolate, not one rock upon another. If you go to Israel with us, you can stand outside the Teropian Valley and look at the stones from the temple all thrown in the valley. They're still the same way they were when Rome toppled them. See, your house is left to you desolate. The owner of the vineyard is going to clear the tenants and give it to somebody else. He's going to clear it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 44, it says, Now the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul was speaking and and reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke boldly, saying, It's necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Everywhere that Paul went, he went to the Jew first, right? And then when it was message was rejected, he went to the Gentiles. So here he's telling them, he's, was it truth? Was it truth that they're rejecting? Was it because it wasn't reasonable? Was it because there was not enough evidence? Is that what they were rejecting? The Bible says that the reason the gospel is rejected is because man loves his sin. Period. Man loves his sin. And he rejects the truth. And you see the same thing here. They rise, they have people rise up against them. So he said to them, For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And so he said, Now the message will go to the Gentiles. It's not because they didn't try. So they throw them out and it says Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet and went on to Iconium. Because the gospel's always moving forward. Looking for the person who doesn't look for a reason to reject it, but for a person who's willing to bow the knee to the authority of God. In the end, every knee will bow. So he's moving forward. In John chapter 10... The Word of God says, Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, so I must bring them also. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about Jerusalem being shut down 30 years after the death of Christ. The children of Israel go into battle against Rome. They fight Rome from 66 to 70. Actually, it goes beyond 70 a little while because there's a group of them in a place called Masada. You guys heard of that? bunch of Jews hiding in Masada. That was the last remnant of the rebellion against Rome. Rome wiped it out. And there was no Israel as a nation till 1948, but there was always Jerusalem. You guys have heard of the Crusades, right? We're going to go take the holy city out of the hands of the infidel. Gentiles fighting other Gentiles to take control of Jerusalem. Jesus said this is what was going to happen. So look at the conclusion of the whole picture in verse 17. So he looked directly at them and said, Okay then, what does this mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's that mean? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him in that very hour. They want to kill him right now. But they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Because the people listened to him gladly. The people were happy to hear. What does this mean? The stone that's been rejected has become the chief of the corner. What is, what is that all about? Psalm 118. Back in the Old Testament. David wrote a psalm and he said in this psalm, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The idea, the picture is that the people in charge are going to reject the most important piece of the building. But what they reject is going to be the cornerstone. He's going to be the cornerstone. In fact, he is that very thing. Now, he describes two things that happen to this stone. Either you fall on it, or it falls on you. Right? We together? Where do those ideas come out of? Those ideas, guys, they come out of Daniel. We go to Daniel, and if you remember, Daniel has a vision. Actually, King Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. Daniel gives the interpretation of his dream. Of a statue. You guys remember the statue? Head of gold, chest of silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. What do they all represent? Daniel gives the interpretation. We'll read it in just a minute. He says, these are all kingdoms. What do they all have in common? None of them last. One is going to the next, is moving to the next, is moving to the next. Now he says, well the important part of this dream is, at the time of the fourth kingdom... Messiah comes. He said the head was Babylon, the chest was Medo-Persian, the the thighs or the the belly and thighs that was uh, the Greeks, Alexander the Great. He goes into a lot of prophecy about him in the book of Daniel. And the fourth kingdom, the time of the fourth king, that was Rome. That's Rome. So in order for there to be Messiah, he had to come during Rome. There's only one of those, isn't there? Do we care about truth? Well, his name was Jesus. He, he, he would come during the fourth kingdom. But there's a fifth kingdom. There's an iron mixed with clay. And then there's feet of clay. Well, what, what does that mean? When we look at it, what we understand is that the kingdoms of men are constantly... What's a good word? They're not progressing, so let's call it digressing. They're moving from gold to clay. In other words, we're getting worse. We govern less uh, uh, righteously. There's less justice. Well, can we recognize that or no? So, so there's always this digression of the kingdoms of men. And the one thing that's true about all the kingdoms of men is all the kingdoms of men are passing. They come, they all say we're going to last forever. Yeah? Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to last forever. He didn't. Medo-Persians, we're going to last forever. They didn't. The Greeks, we're going to last forever. They didn't. Rome, we're going to last forever. They didn't. Ottoman, we're going to last forever. They didn't. Britain, we're going to last forever. They didn't. United States, we're going to last forever. No way. We're like, we're not even on the scale with those other kingdoms. You understand that? They lasted for a thousand years. We're barely hanging on, you know, better than 200 years now. 
barely. It's crazy. But here's what he said. One day, a stone is going to come from the heavens, not cut with hands. And it's going to hit the statue in the feet. And it's going to grind it to powder. And all the kingdoms of men are going to blow away in the wind. And then that stone that struck the feet and ground the whole thing to powder is going to become a mountain and fill the whole earth. Prophetically, mountains are kingdoms. He's talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God entered into the scheme of man under the fourth kingdom. But it's an already and not yet kingdom, meaning it's already here. It's here spiritually. We have a king spiritually, but our king, his feet aren't on the ground right now, right? We can't see him. But one day we will. And when that stone comes, that day it's going to grind all the kingdoms of man to powder. Revelation 19. You ever read it? And all the armies of the world will gather in a place called Har Megiddo. The valley of Armageddon. We've heard about that before, haven't we? And the Son of Man will return. And every eye will see Him. And the armies that were fighting each other are all going to turn to Him and say, we won't have this one to rule over us. And Jesus is going to turn around and He's going to look at His army that's there with Him, the, ch- the church, the angels, and He's going to say, you guys just wait here a minute. He don't need our help. Colossians says that the entire universe is held together by the word of His power. That He made it all, And he holds it all together. And I know that's true because he's the only thing that holds my life together. What what happens on a day when all of the kingdoms of men turn against the stone and the stone just lets go? Peter describes it. Annihilation. I just want you to understand, I long to see Jesus. I long to see Him as King. And I know His kingdom is righteous and holy and true, but I don't long for that day. That's a bloody day. That's why Jesus said, Listen, church, I've given you a mina. Everybody's got the same thing. I've given you all the gospel. Now go do something with it. Because there will be a day. Now, 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 today, I have an opportunity to fall on the stone. This is what the Bible declares. The Bible declares that the, the cornerstone is laying there and people are tripping over it. They're looking around for something else to build. This is so obvious every time I talk to an atheist. Every time I talk to somebody who's rejecting the truth of God's Word. This is obvious to me. They're tripping over Jesus trying to find something else. And I, I look and I say, you know, apart from God, apart from Him... Your world is absurd. And you know it's absurd. And you can see the absurdity in our, in our argument when we're talking. But you're tripping over Jesus trying not to have to pick him up. The Bible says he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 
So they're looking to build their worldview. They're looking to build their kingdom. But they don't want, well, all they know that they don't want is, I don't want that stone. Any other stone is okay, but I don't want that one. But those to whom we take the gospel, who will come to that stone and fall on it, we break. And that's not a bad thing. Whenever the shepherd went to look for a lost lamb, he would find this lamb. Maybe this lamb was pretty frequently wandering. You guys have all seen the picture, right? A Jesus with a lamb on his shoulders. Maybe you don't know why it's up there. So he, he'd go find his lamb and say, Come on now, little lamb, stop wandering away. And at some point, the shepherd would break its leg. Oh, that hurts. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And he can't wander no more. But you know what the shepherd does when the legs broke? He carries that lamb on his shoulder everywhere he goes. He feeds it from his hand. He watches over and cares for that little lamb. And when that lamb's healed, do you know what happens? It never leaves again. Because it knows everything it needs is with the shepherd. So all those who will fall on the rock and be broken, yeah, He heals. He restores. Jesus, when, he's, when He talks about these things, he's not, he's not filled with joy. The Bible says when He looked over Jerusalem, He wept. He wept over the hardness of their heart and the rejection of the truth. So there's two kinds of people, right? The one upon whom the stone will fall and the ones who will fall upon the stone. I choose to fall on the stone. I choose to acknowledge I'm a mess. I don't know. Maybe you guys don't have that issue, but I'm I'm broke. I'm, I'm far from perfect. But I know in whom I have believed and I am persuaded that He's able to keep me. He's able to make me. He's able. If He needs to break my leg, break it. If He needs to carry me, carry me. Keep me on the way of everlasting life. Help me walk with you. That's all the things that God promises to do when we'll fall on the stone. That's what Jesus lays out to the people. Yeah. He's the authority. He's going to say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much is that? That's all. Where? In heaven? How do you have all of the authority in heaven? Who do you have to be? (laughs) It's not brain surgery. And it's not a trick question. Yeah. Yeah, the question for us this morning, like them, will we reject the truth? Or will we receive it? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word, what your word declares. And God, I thank you that you are our cornerstone. That you are my rock of salvation. That you... You hold me together. 
God, you declared that in Zion you were laying a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You told us the rock was a person. You said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be ashamed. But God, the word also declares that the rock of salvation, the rock of our foundation, is also a rock of rejection. That men will stumble over it, trip over it, run around it, needing that rock in their life, but denying it. They'll say it's not there, even as they trip on it. But God, this rock is also the rock of destruction. It it will destroy every kingdom of mankind. But it also will destroy the false gods and sin in my life. Either I let that rock judge me, or I fall on it and call on it to purge me. God, when Isaiah stood before you, In Isaiah chapter 6, he was suddenly facing the truth. As he stood before Almighty God, he said, I am undone. For I am a man, I'm a liar, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people who are all liars. We're all liars, we're messed, we're broken. I'm not worthy to be here. But God, the word declares that you sent an angel to take coal from the altar And you brought that coal over to Isaiah's lips and you touched him and you said, Your sins are purged. And you, God, are willing to do that to everyone who will look to you. Everyone who will come to you. Everyone will stop the rejection. Everyone who will stop the love of sin and turn toward the love of God. Who gave us freely all good things to enjoy. You'll purge. The the word of God would describe this as an extravagant love. Some would describe it as reckless. Because that love is no guarantee that it will be returned.